Hoody ho! Hey guys, we are back with episode 25. I'm recording these ahead of time, so I'm trying to remember the number. Um, because technically I just put out 20. And so these are done ahead of time. But I've, I found a lot of great people to do interviews now. Um, it's really working out. But I don't want to make this one too long because this is a longer interview. Um, this is Allison, and she has a very, very long story. But a very um, impactful and... Bullet, leave my box alone. <laughs> Sorry, kitty cat. Um, but she she's she's doing a lot of great things for people with disabilities. And, you know, she's an awesome person. So please welcome Allison. This call is being recorded. Hello. Hello. Hi, PJ. Good to be talking to you. (laughs) Same here. Um, Yeah, I guess like I said, we can just kind of wing it. Um, But yeah, so this is Allison. We met, I don't even know what group we met on. Um, Uh, You remember which one? I think it was Disabilities, Not Abilities. Or abilities and abilities was not positive. One of the, well, yeah, one of the many uh, Facebook disability groups. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, and I, I put out a little message saying, you know, I'd like to find some people that wanted to tell their story, and she was one of the first people to do so. So yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, why don't you? Well, you might as well tell us your name and age, and you know, what your childhood was like. Okay. Well, um, I'm Allison Hayes, and I'm in my early 40s, and um, I grew up in a pretty well-off area, um, but I was one of the, I I was one of the uh, resource room kids, of course, uh, my classmates weren't that nice about it. Um, there was a different name that started with R that they preferred. Um, I grew up with a fine motors disability, which basically translates into um, my writing was pretty much illegible, and anything that required like really you know good motor skills, I wasn't so great at it. Um, right. It's something that basically using a computer and um, practice has made better. I basically took notes in my classes um, starting on, the, on a computer starting probably about for fourth, fifth grade, which was really strange at the time. I mean, nowadays, oh, okay, you use your computer. Everybody uses their computer. But at the time, their laptops as we know them didn't, really exist. So what I had, I still remember, it was called a Z88, and it was basically about the size of um, a notebook, a little thicker, um, and it had a four-line screen, and that was it. Okay. And so it was just this little tiny screen to write on, and I took all of my notes and things like that. 
Um, now, did it have like a stylist or? Oh, no. What? Oh, no, 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 no. They were nowhere near that technology. It was literally a keyboard. Oh, a keyboard, okay. It was a little keyboard which took up most of it and then a little a tiny, tiny screen. screen that could literally hold four lines down and that was it. Yeah, they eventually um, started making those down the road, which were like higher quality, but still kind of crappy. Those little tiny mini computers. Um, yeah. But they, yeah. their hardware and software were not that. They, they never. I don't think they ever really made any real legit good ones. But yeah, you probably had one of like the, the very few like first models. Of, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, anyway. Yeah, it was an early. Yeah. So <clears throat> I don't know how much my parents spent on it. Probably. <laughs> You know, way more than you'd expect. Um, oh yeah, back then, yeah. Oh yeah, but you know, I you know I had something that I could use that let me take my notes at the same rate as my classmates. Because the problem was my fingers would cramp up after just a little while, and my handwriting would be so bad I could barely read it. Um, and so I've always lived with that. Mm, this disabled-ish label, the you're not, you know, you're not like the rest of us kind of thing, even though when you think about it, what I had was a relatively mild uh, learning disability because it... it this is something you're born with, right? Um, yeah, but we, my family figured this out when I was in like, when I was like three or four and uh, we were given you know, exercises for me to do and things like that. And I went uh-huh. from having, you know, gross motor control to just fine. But, you know, I, I still have, you know, I still have this. But it's, at this point, it's a very, my, it's it's almost a non-existent issue for me because I can type everything, you know. Well, yeah, um, right. Was my, there expectations? Like the doctor, did he have, like, low expectations on what you could or couldn't do? Or did they tell you what you, what was potential for you? No, I don't actually remember, like, like, um, I don't even remember there being a doctor involved, so to speak. It was literally, uh, they had various kinds of social workers and physical therapists, and they made the diagnosis when I was too young to, you know, know what they were saying, and they just talked to my parents. Right. So that's so, not something they can detect, like, right out of the womb? No, no, no. I'm just trying to give them as many I, information as possible on what you have. Oh, oh yeah, no, absolutely. So, like, basically, yeah, so it was, like, as a kid, um, you know, as a small child, like, they were, like, wait, she's not handling the clay well kind of thing. And, um, and they were, like, oh, this is weird. So, is that a test? I'm sorry, I don't mean to keep cutting you off, just because even yeah, I'm not that no. familiar. So, so the clay is that some sort of test to see your motor well, skills? Like, like how? Yeah, I don't know enough details to you know give you 100. percent I just know right, that okay. like, yeah. So it was just kind of this thing of my hands weren't, you know, I wasn't handling things that required like fine motor skills as well as kids my age should have been. Okay. So it, right. it wasn't something so severe that it was, you know, obvious as an infant, but just at, you know, three or four right. years old, I'm playing with things, and the way that I'm playing, I'm not 
like, you know, if I was playing with clay, I wasn't able to make the shapes as well as a kid my age should have, that kind of thing. Right. And so they looked okay. at that and went, okay, that's a fine motors issue. Let's, right. you know, do a bunch of exercises with her hands and build up the dexterity in her fingers that she doesn't naturally have. Right. So, now, is this what what year the, the condition you have? Is it very rare? Well, this isn't actually the main condition. The main condition I have okay. is called functional neurological disorder, but that wasn't diagnosed until I was in college. Okay, sorry, I skipped ahead. Go ahead, continue. Yeah, no, 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 no. You're fine. You're fine. Um, I'm just saying, like, as a kid, I was a little on the right. outside, and I used the assistance that's normally available. Um, gotcha. And dealt with the social ramifications of that. Um, when I was nine, I was diagnosed with uh, depression. Uh, basically, I'd had multiple family members um, die, and from my perspective, it was very suddenly. Um, right. It was, you know, my, my, my grandmother had emphysema, and my mom kept saying, oh, yeah, you can see her when she gets out of the hospital, and she never got out of the hospital. Um, right. my, gran- my grandfather had died of a stroke, um, my great aunt had been killed in a car accident, you know, just, you know, multiple deaths. Uh, my grandfather and great aunt died when I was six and I was low, but it wasn't something that could be defined as depression. And then when my grandmother, a family friend and my art teacher died within a few months of each other, um, I basically turned to my mom one day and said to her, you know, I'm trying to think of happy things and I just can't, I I, right. I, just, I, I can't cheer up. Oh, and, now, um, I'm sorry. It's it's mm-hmm. very hard to, you know, when you're on the phone, you can't like wave your hand and go like, hey, over here. Yeah. <laughs> All right. No, um, you're good. But I mean, from someone who's been dealing with depression, so like would, and if, if you can remember, I know you were nine, but like, mm-hmm. was it something, did you feel like just, I mean, because it's hard to really understand death and, and all that at that age. Right. Like, was it like, were you like perceiving it as like everyone is just leaving you? Yeah, it was this deep-seated, you know, they're gone and there's nothing I can do. And I knew they were gone forever. And so yeah. there was this like sense of uh, being abandoned and not... Hmm. And, you know, these people that I loved were were gone. Um, Another piece of this was my mother had actually, um, it turns out, had been um, abused by her parents. And Hmm. part of that abuse was oversharing information. (laughs) And Uh so my mom decided that since I was already depressed, which meant I was like her, because the reason she was able to recognize my depression right away is because she herself had a history of depression. Mm-hmm. Um, she saw me as an appropriate confidant. So while I'm depressed about losing everybody, um, she started uh, telling me stories of the abuse, which gave me this really uncomfortable 
weird clashing perspective because this was my grandparents who I loved and who loved me and who I knew as safe people. And my mom, who is supposed to be the safest of people, is telling me about how my grandpa hurt her. Right, Um, yeah. So um, I think that... Did you see anything from your parent, like your mom, to where, like, like, you know, sometimes when certain things are right there on the surface, but you can't really tell until like something is revealed and you're like, Oh, that's why she's like that. Um, um at the time, no, in retrospect. Right. Cause you were young. Right. And, right. Well, and, and it was, you know, um, my parents were a very happy couple, very affectionate, you know, it was a very, they had a very healthy relationship, even though they both had been through abuse. And so after mom's sharing with me, I've got these insights that I have no idea what to do with. And this sense of people who I think are safe can hurt people I love too. Mm-hmm. Like that was that was the big message there. Um, right. And even though all of my life, mom was very loving with her parents and very affectionate and there was nothing that I saw that, you know, even an adult would necessarily recognize as abuse. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it was just a shock to my system to hear these things. And um, I knew I couldn't talk about them with anybody else. You know, that was not something you talked about. And so, like, when I, my mom got me to therapy and had me seeing a therapist, but I never thought to mention these things my mom shared with me because that's its own special category and that doesn't get talked about. Um, So, you know, so I had, but I did have this deep-seated conflict of, wait, Grandpa seemed like such a wonderful, loving person who was safe, who who loved me, who cared about me, who wanted me to be happy, and he hurt my mom. (laughs) Who also you know, loves me, protects me, wants to keep me safe, wants me to be happy. I don't understand, mm-hmm. you know. Right. Um, and you put these people on a pedestal, too. Like, you, you look at them as, like, they're, you know, young heroes, the people that are around and take care of you. And, and then all of a sudden, exactly. something like that is like, holy shit, like, they're not yeah. as great as we thought. And I didn't, I didn't know what to do with it, I guess. Is right. what You're so it. young, so. Yeah. So, like, she's sharing this information with me, like, from when I was nine to when I was, like, 11 or so, um, Mm. as she's processing their death, as she's recognizing the abuse, as she's, you know, um, they were alcoholics, and so she's going to Al-Anon, and she, you know, so she was doing all of the healthy, appropriate things. She just didn't process that telling me was a bad idea because the way she'd been raised, that's what you do. You confide these deep, dark things with your kid because that's what her parents did with her. So I don't, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't hold her as intentionally hurting me at all. No. Uh, But, you know, she, 
she didn't realize she didn't process. She didn't think to mention this to her therapist because that's what you did, you know, Uh, as far as I know, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Um, And growing up, I noticed that my parents were doing certain things from some of their therapies. And so I knew on some level that they were working on making the relationship better and stronger. And that was something that was empowering to me. Like, you know, like I said, my parents were always loving and affectionate. I never went through the, are my parents going to get divorced kind of fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew they were trying to be even better. So were they very kind of supportive a, of your condition? Oh, um, yeah. They, I mean, like I said, as soon as they figured out that a laptop, you know, having a computer take notes on would be helpful. They got that for me. My dad started teaching me to type when I was probably six or seven, um, specifically so I could get around the fine motors issue. Do you see what I mean? Mm. Like it was, that was that was the point. And so, again, I don't know how much those those things cost in relation to their, you know, income. But I know they bought me the computer. They got me an upgrade. They got me a couple of upgrades. Um, my dad always made sure that I had, you know, the right technology to work with. Um, That's awesome. Well, you know how sometimes yeah. parents or, or anybody close can, you know, they want their kids to be perfect or whatever that's mm-hmm. supposed to be. And it's like even the slight, some, some parents aren't great with that kind of stuff. They just, you know, you have, it's not, not only do you have to treat us the same but you also have to like also recognize the problem because some people tend mm-hmm. to either downplay it or they treat us like children and it's like you have to find the the, the balance um, right now do you, do you have like, any siblings yes i have two younger siblings they're identical twins <laughs> oh, okay. and and they're um they're they're like two and a half years younger than me Right. I only um, ask that because, like I said, you know, having other children, you know, you're, you're basically just like, hey, treat me like them. Uh, right. Just know right. that I have one little thing that makes me a little different. Right. And, like, with this, my family really made a point of not making a big deal about it. We never thought about it as a big deal. It just was, okay, mm-hmm. um, basically my school pretty much immediately accepted that this was an issue I had and was absolutely fine with me. Basically, I used the resource room so that I could have extra time on uh, tests and uh, have, you know, just that little bit of uh, flexibility. Because, again, my handwriting was so bad and difficult, they wanted to allow me time to make sure I I practiced everything right. And, you know, that kind of thing. So it was this, you know, um, on the scale of things, it was relatively mild, and my family never treated it like a problem. But I was aware that I was, like, basically, here's the other part of it. I'm also intelligent and was was, um, not necessarily the best student. I didn't always aim for A's or A pluses, but I always understood the material very well, very quickly. I absorbed the information. It was just the uh, getting it out that was a little more challenging. So right. I was that like, has to throw people off because it's like right. 
You know, he's exactly. like, well, you can't write, but you can, you know, you can, and you, your reading level is fine. Right. And so, like, I was in the yeah. highest reading groups. I was, you know, um, I was in the, you know, higher level math class. I was, you know, so those, by those things, I was a really good student. But right. I still went to the resource room every day. So, like, yeah, so, like, the, you know, so my classmates, I was very different. Yeah, you know, I was different. Um, and so, like, you know, through middle school, high school, I, you know, I found my way, but I was, you know, usually kind of on my own or just a couple of um, of friends. And I struggled with the depression. Um, I was on antidepressants starting, you know, when I was that, you know, nine or so and got off them when most people might start getting prescribed them, you know, in high school. Um, right. I, I I went through periods of wanting to hurt myself, but at that mm. point I didn't have, like, anything like a suicidal ideation. It was literally my emotions are so strong. I need to get them out somehow, and I would get that right. out, you know, scratching at my wrist and things like that. Um, you had a, I saw you were cutting. Yeah. Yeah. It's very okay. mild cutting, but yeah, like, um, uh, like no. literally it was stuff that would, you know, disappear within a few days. I never left any scars, but it was, you know, it was, I reached these emotional crescendos that I just, I couldn't process. Right. And so to like have something to express how much I was, angry, hurting off. I would, you know, scratch myself hard so mm-hmm. that there'd be some kind of relief. Right. I would get out somehow. That was the kind of thought process at the time. Um, while I was in college, um, I got into a emotionally unhealthy relationship. I was I was dating a man who was probably narcissistic and had something, you know, he he hit this point of emotional just instability. And the way that relationship it, and that you know it 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 fell apart in a really nasty way but even while it was going there was a unhealthy element to it and i just remember and this was my first fnd symptom but i didn't know that at the time he and i were like um in bed together and like cuddling with each other and i started to shiver like, you know, like it was cold out, but it wasn't, you know. And my whole body just started shaking. Um, it just exaggerated the shiver until every inch of me was shaking as if I was cold. And he held me closer, and I shook harder. And looking back on that with an analytical lens, I kind of know what was happening, which was this deep emotional conflict because I loved him and I wanted to be with him and I felt unsafe with him. So that same like 
unhealthy combination of emotions that I felt about my grandparents when my mom told me about that, that I felt about, you know what I mean? Like it was this. Right, right, yeah. This is an emotion that's happened before that's got a lot of conflict around it that I don't know what to do with. And mm-hmm. How long were you together body, before that happened? Um, he and I had been together for almost a year. And the okay. first year-ish of the relationship, or, you know, six, seven months, I guess, everything seemed good and it seemed healthy. It seemed like a really good, solid relationship. And then he hit some emotional rough patches and got more and more, like, off balance. And he and I started fighting, and it turned into this thing where we'd fight almost once, almost weekly and then wouldn't see each other for a day or two because of the fight. And then we'd reconnect. You weren't living together? Oh, uh, this was college. We were all in the dorms. Oh, okay. Gotcha, gotcha. So... We actually lived in the same building, <laughs> um, yeah, I but I, but I was on you know one of the girls' floors and he was on one of the guys' floors, you know. Gotcha. Yeah. Um. So he, so like, so yeah. So we'd be spending all this time together and then we'd get in a big fight, and then I wouldn't see him for a day or two, and usually when I didn't see him, I was also, um, he had shared some suicidal tendencies with me. So I actually, when I was with him and I didn't see him, I was a little worried that he might be contemplating suicide or making plans. And then when we, you know, run into each other again, he would pretend there hadn't been a fight and I would go along with it. And so it was this really unhealthy um, dynamic. And I just didn't, I didn't know what to do with it. And I couldn't process it very well, and we couldn't resolve it because he wouldn't. He wouldn't even admit that there had been a problem or a fight. It was just this. Okay, we're good. Yeah, and that's I, unhealthy in itself. Oh, absolutely. It was pretty. It was. It was bad, and that triggered that same emotion that I'd had as a kid, I think, and I started shaking. And um, for the first several months, I just did, didn't process it at all, didn't really acknowledge it was happening. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And after he and I broke up, after he and I broke up, um, he then kept, like, alternating between trying to get back together and vanishing completely from my life. And... So I was put in this state of constant anxiety because if I didn't know where he was, I was afraid he was contemplating suicide because I still cared about him. Um, If I saw him, we'd get into a fight. (laughs) Does that also go back to when you were a kid, all these people that died and you're constantly wanting to know if they're they're still there? yeah, a little bit probably, but it was just, it, like I said, so I was in this bad emotional state that echoed my childhood that, you know, just put me in this really, you know, bad place of super high anxiety because 
I never felt safe. Um, mm-hmm. If and it reached this point of I didn't want him to know where I was because if he knew where I was, he'd maybe show up or maybe I'd hope he'd show up. And if I and like I said, it was just there was it, there was no winning situation except what I eventually found that wasn't so bad was if I knew that he had no idea where I was so he couldn't find me. Like, Mm. that was the only thing that felt at all safe. So I literally was, like, sleeping in friends' dorm rooms and, you know, like, just making sure he he didn't know where I was. Um, And during that phase, I started having now movements where my whole body would like spread out suddenly. Like, you know, when you, you know, the startle reflex, like you get scared and like your whole body is just like, ah, and everything moves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what my body started doing for no apparent reason at random intervals. Like this full body startle reflex. And my friends noticed this. And we were like, Allison, what's going on? And I'm like, I don't know. Um, and I referred to them as my twitches. And uh, a friend of mine det- discovered that if she said the word twitch to me, I would have that reaction. So it was really strange. <clears throat> Nobody knew what to do with it, including me. Um, and I ended up going to, like, the, the residence life advisor. Um, so, like, you know, the slightly older adult on campus who, you know, was supposed to help you with big situations. And she took me to the hospital and I saw a neurologist and the neurologist was like, okay, yeah, this is just severe anxiety. Here, take this pill. <laughs> what do you give you? Uh, she gave me uh, chromazepam. Okay. And, and was like, here, take this. And yeah, it sounds like you're in a pretty, you know, you know, you're in a really stressful place right now. And we're gonna figure out how to get yourself out of it. And in the meantime, take these pills, and you should be okay. Um, and my symptoms did go down. And um, at the end of the school year, I uh, I set it up so I would be off campus for the fall and the winter and just came back on campus for spring for my final my final term in college. Mm-hmm. And so with that very large amount of time away from him, I was able to heal a bit. I didn't have symptoms. Um, I had some minor shaking around like midterms time um, and finals at the program I was in in the fall. Um, But other than that, I had no symptoms. I seemed to be fine. So, okay. That was a weird, you know, that was a weird period, but all right, I'm good now. Um, Except, except, you know, I I wasn't. Um, I had about 
a year and a half, almost two years, symptom-free, and I took advantage of it. I went, um, after I graduated, I traveled, and I lived in Australia for eight months, (laughs) Um, and I was symptom-free the whole time. And then I applied to graduate school, and when I had my interviews for grad school, I got a little shaky. And then I ended up not doing grad school, and I got a job as a fishery observer on the Gulf of Mexico. (laughs) And that was great. I lived on a shrimp boat, and uh, basically I was out to sea for weeks at a time and uh, just, you know, knee deep in fish and shrimp and all kinds of cool stuff. And I loved that job. I I was really happy. This is what I wanted to do. And, you know, it was great. Um, and about two, two or three months into the job, um, they found out they'd lost their funding. Um, mm. They were funded through the uh, National Marine Fisheries Service. Um, and they'd had a budget cut, and they kind of had to go somewhere, and, you know, they cut the observer program that I was working for. And they said, look, you know, we've been here before. We're going to see if we can get funding. We might be able to get back in action. We might not. We don't know. Um, So, you know, just hang in there. We might have work for you eventually, but we, you know, we can't promise anything because we lost our expected funding. So um, right before I found this out, a friend and I had committed to our first apartment. <laughs> so, uh. you know, so basically I get back home and I've got no job, um, an apartment with a friend, and no idea what to do next. Like, I didn't know if I should be looking for a new job, didn't think to apply for unemployment, um, just really confused and uncertain. Mm-hmm. And um, in this confused and uncertain state, I didn't do anything. And I just waited for the phone call to say, hey, here's more work. And um, I started having some of the shakes again. And over time, I realized that um, I was peeing a lot. And I kept needing to go to the bathroom. Like every, like it, it you know, it was, it was one of those over time, it went from kind of a normal, you know, maybe after, you know, three, four hours, I need to pee sometimes longer, sometimes, you know, to, oh, no, I needed to pee, like, every two hours to, I kept feeling like I needed to pee. I had no idea what was going on in my body, just that I felt this constant, you know, need to pee. So by mid-February, I talked to a doctor, and uh, he, he was like, oh, you probably got a urinary tract infection, and here's some antibiotics. Um, that made sense to me at the time. So I took the antibiotics and was absolutely unchanged. 
And he went, oh, well, I guess those weren't strong enough and gave me another round of antibiotics. And I'm like, okay, but this didn't work. And mm-hmm. um, so I eventually ended up seeing a urologist, and they had no idea what was wrong. And um, by the time um, the job the job did call me back, but when they called me back, I was on a catheter. I they put me on a catheter for a week to see if that giving my bladder a break would be the thing to help it work right again. You know, like they were just like they didn't know and they were guessing and trying. You know, um, mm-hmm. and so I couldn't take the job, which, you know, didn't help my mental state. <laughs> right. And, um, well, the problem with anxiety, too, it gives you so many symptoms to similar things. I talked about, like, back in my really heyday of anxiety, like, I was panicking about, like, STDs and different things. And a lot of the symptoms, other than, like, the real major symptoms, but, you know, like, the, the flu-like yeah. symptoms and being out of it and achy and all these things, like, if you look that up on WebMD or any of these type of places, you're going to get a thousand different answers because oh yeah, it it, it causes so much confusion in your body that you really oh, don't absolutely. know what's going on. Oh so, yeah, yeah it, it's and, re- it's very sporadic. And so basically, I went through like another three months of just this bladder dysfunction with no identifiable cause whatsoever. Nobody had any idea what it was. And, um, n- you know, nobody knew what to make of any of it. So um, I kind of went, okay, well, if nobody knows what's going on, I'm going to just do my best to ignore it. And, mm. um, you know, I got a new job and started trying to do that. And... Uh, and you know, it ended up doing. Ended up basically out of nowhere. My whole body started shaking and wouldn't stop. That was in May. I had my just my whole body was shaking and nobody knew why. And how, were so you, that, how old were you then? This was I was twenty two. Okay, so eighteen. And years, this yeah. was yeah. So it was like right after college. Like I said, it was like that, you know, two years after college, I should be, you know, developing my life. And instead, I've got this bladder problem, and now I can't stop shaking. Mm -hmm. Um, We called a neurologist who'd seen me when I was asymptomatic, and he's like, okay, yeah, you're right. This is pretty strange. So uh, go to the hospital this particular hospital that I work with and, you know, we'll try to figure out what's going on. So, yeah, I was, you know, I had to get admitted through the emergency room and it was a, you know, big, uncomfortable thing. But they got me in there and were able to run a bunch of tests all at once and basically he had me sleep deprived, then tried to get me to have a seizure you know, the EEG testing, and then they knocked me out to do MRIs of my back to see if there is, you know, some sort of damage there. And um, nothing. 
I didn't, you know, I wasn't having the seizure. I, you know, there was nothing they could find that looked off in the MRI. Um, and they couldn't, they couldn't figure out what was going on. And I'm lying there shaking. And I didn't stop shaking for days. Uh, that hospital stay was honestly pretty um, traumatic. The combination of the EEG and um, that combination of the EEG with, you know, all of... Have you ever had an EEG? Yeah. The, I believe so. They, they kind of do sandpapery stuff to to make tiny little bulb patches on your head so they can get the get a really oh, good... Oh, no. No, I haven't done that, but my um, my sister has. That's why I was okay, thinking about so, it. Yeah, because she had so, uh, major seizures and stuff. Okay. So so the thing about an EEG is they decide... They have all of these sensors they want to attach to your head. And right. the way they do it is with this really nasty, sticky, sticky, sticky stuff. Um Right, yeah. That kind of glue-ish, but it's a gel, so it never dries completely. Mm -hmm. And they put, like, little bits of sandpaper to make sure that there's um, space, that, that, you know, that you can have direct contact with your scalp instead of your hair. And so getting put on an EEG is this torturous process of somebody like running sandpaper on your scalp in a little tiny section and then putting, gluing this electrode on and then doing it again and again. And they put like 20 or so of those things in your, you know, on your head. And when they finish, they then pull all the leads out, but you've got nasty, sticky, sticky glue on your head. Um, and it's like normally you take a shower and you eventually get it out and it's not that bad, but literally the moment they finished that test, they whisked me over to get the MRI and knocked me out. So I came Mm -hmm. out of the anesthesia and my head was this like, was just covered with the sticky nastiness and Mm -hmm. That combination of, like, the anesthesia and my head being, like, nasty just put me over the edge since I'd also been shaking constantly for, like, three days at that point. And Uh I just burst into tears and fell apart. And I'm like, I need to take a shower now and do the one thing I can control and get this nastiness out of my hair. And the nurse is like, you're not allowed to take a shower. And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, well, you just got off the anesthetic. You're not allowed to get out of bed for another hour. And I'm like, I got it. And I just freaked out, fell apart. I'm like screaming and crying and having hysterics, none of which is normal for me. And I'm like, I got to get this crap out. And I'm like sobbing. And they're like, and my mom had, my mom was there when I woke up. And they were like, okay. If your mother's in there with you and observes you the whole time, you can take your shower. So I had an incredibly weird, uncomfortable half hour or so where my mom's in the bathroom with me and I want to be alone. (laughs) 
and I'm bawling my eyes out as I'm like scrubbing my head, still on anesthesia, <laughs> you know, just like Wah! I gotta get it out, I gotta get it out, and my mom's like standing there like. My daughter's falling apart. What can I do? I can do nothing. Oh, my God. So <laughs> there was that. Um, and then a day later, they transferred me to another area. And the nurse there, oh, yeah, and the, I did see a psychiatrist there. And, like, my diagnosis is straight-up depression with a bit of anxiety. You know, that's it. There's nothing else, like, psychologically off and this woman was really unpleasant and was like oh she's paranoid she's you know and just started like listing all of these problems that I didn't have and then declared that I needed to get this really really powerful um, seizure med by IV and right after she made that pronouncement, I was whisked to another area of the hospital. Um, and then the nurse in the other area was like, right, you've got an IV hole. I'm going to just put your IV in uh, without recognizing that I'd been shaking constantly for days and um, the IV hadn't been used for days. And she stuck it in and left. And the IV had actually worked its way out. And so she was putting the medication, like, into my arm, not my vein. (laughs) Oh, okay, yeah. So I'm, like, in excruciating pain and, like, crying and screaming and hitting the call button, and nobody's responding. And the woman in the bed next to me, who was not in good shape and shouldn't have gotten out of bed, went over to try to help me by trying to stop the flow from the machine because I was in agony and the nurse didn't show up. And like... Fifteen minutes later, the nurse finally walks in the room and is like, what? And I'm like, um, this IV didn't go in my arm. Uh, I'm in pain because, you know, there's this medication that didn't get into me (laughs) that you wanted me to take that uh, I'm in pain here. Help. And she just had somebody else come in and put and um, put in a new IV in my hand, which was lovely. And, um, you know, restarted me on the meds and stuff. But it was just, you know, there was a couple of really traumatizing, nightmarish hospital experiences. Um, Closed out by, from all the stress and everything, um, at the end of the, like, I was there for four days. And on Friday, Saturday, they were like, um, my parents had been told that I was being released and they were like coming to pick me up. And I didn't know this because nobody communicated this to me. And um, I got really badly hit with that 
abandonment feeling and the fear and anxiety that goes with that. And I started having, like, desires to, you know, do my very mild cutting. And as a point of emotional pride, I didn't want to do that because I thought I was past that. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, that's something I used to do and I don't want to do it again. And so I reached out to the nurse there and said, look, you know, um, I've got a small desire to hurt myself and I don't want to do it. Could you know? Could you please check in on me more often because I, I need somebody around? And she went, "Oh my God, she's suicidal!" and ran out of the room. <laughs> and they tried to put me on a psych hold. And eventually, they put me on the phone with the psychologist. I was the psychiatrist who I was. Uh, supposed to see instead of the woman who was so nasty and he and I had a conversation and I'm like look I know I have a history of depression I'm having an urge to you know put marks on my flesh I'm not suicidal I you know I'm feeling hurt I'm feeling overwhelmed the thing I do when I hit this overwhelmed point is you know stick things in my skin so that emotions shown somewhere and I'm trying not to do it that's all I was asking for somebody to be present so that they could help me not do that and he's like oh yeah that makes total sense let me talk to the nurses and you know he was able to explain and calm them down and so I did leave the hospital that day but still no idea what was going on but, you know, that hospital visit was really traumatizing for me, even though nothing super major happened. Um, there was one person on this, there was one person on the staff there who said, you know, since we can't figure it out, I recommend that you call the office uh, for the Center of Parkinson's and other movement disorders um, and see somebody there because this looks like a movement disorder to me, not seizures. And so they might be able to figure this out. Um, And that's what I did. And that was where I actually got diagnosed. How quickly? Um, Once I got to that point, it was quick. Uh, It took about mm, two or three weeks to get in to see him. And I walked into that that neurologist, uh, Dr. Mazzoni. I walked into his office, or Lent, really. My dad, you know, was there with me. And he he got my permission to videotape me, and he and I talked. And um, he looked, you know, I'm like, look, every scan they've done, there's nothing. Every test they've run, there's no problems. I don't know what's going on. That's kind of how it usually plays out, too, where you basically spend a crap load of your life trying to figure out the problem and no one's giving you answers, and then there's just like this small crack that the answer seeps through, and you get to this one destination, and the answer's right there. It's like, oh, yeah, if you would have just came here first, basically, you would have had this within the day. It's like, oh, Oh, Jesus. Of course. And so, yeah, so Dr. Mazzoni, you know, did a couple of, like, you know, very standard, you know, touch your nose 
kind of neurological tests. And he's like, okay. Um, I'm 99% sure I know what you have, but I need you to see a psychiatrist uh, that I know to confirm it. Uh, he's like, I know movement disorders, and the movements that you're having, which at this point was like the constant tremoring stop, but I still tremored a lot, and I was having the like startle response, and I was rocking back and forth a bit. You know, it was a few different things, a few different movement things. Um, and I still had the, 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 you know, constant urinary urgency. And he's like, okay, looking at these movements, they're not any of the standard movement disorders. This isn't, you know, this isn't essential tremors. This isn't ticks. This is, you know, they had a went down the laundry list. And he's like, I'm pretty sure that what you have is called conversion disorder, um, and but the complete diagnosis of it requires you see a psychiatrist too. And I'm like, oh, okay. And he's like, it's a stress response, and for some people, it just goes away after a while. And so you need to basically try to relax try to ignore or minimize your symptoms and um, we can try that we can try the clonazepam again see if it's helpful for you but uh, the main thing you know the main thing is kind of manage your your stress levels and just you know it's possible that this will go away okay and you know we talked about the urinary stuff he's like yeah a lot of people who have conversion disorder also have urinary problems as one of the, the symptoms. That mm. you know, that fits too, and that might be your cause. And I'm like, okay. So he started to get and, a little bit of that aww moment. Yes, exactly. Um, mm. And I saw the psychiatrist he wanted me to, and he confirmed that it made sense. Um, what I know now is that the way that that works is at the time the it's now the the modern name for it is functional neurological disorder but wow. at the time it was called conversion disorder and considered a psychological psychiatric condition um, okay. where basically as a stress response some people would develop all different kinds of uh, movement symptoms or other neurological-ish symptoms that didn't fit any of the standard causes. And it has no relation um, to what you were, what you found out about you as a kid. Being no relation whatsoever. Yeah. No, that's what I nope. thought. Okay. Yep. That was just an extra stress in my childhood. <laughs> that let now, was me... his only answer? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, and so, you know, after I saw the psychiatrist and confirmed, he's like, okay, so you, you know, so it might just get better and take it easy. Was that his only answer? At the time, that was his only answer. 
And that was actually appropriate. Right. He's like, and like the other piece of it was, he's like, you know, you should, if you aren't already, you should see a psychologist. Um, sometimes there's, you know, emotional triggers involved. And so talking it out with a psychologist is a good move. It may help you. Um, but there isn't a medication or a procedure for you to do. It's it's a, um, for some people, it just goes away naturally and focus on that and just, you know, do your best to keep living your life. Right. Um, so, that I do, that I do like, see where... We were talking about yesterday about how, like, you know, because, and you'll say it at the end, but with the, mm-hmm. all the stuff you're trying to get into with Medicare, it makes a lot more, uh, you know, yeah. not with Medicare, but with, you know, with all the medical history and, and insurance mm-hmm. and all these things, coverage, it makes a lot more sense of all the traumatic things you went through to, mm-hmm. you know, how you got to where you are now because, you know, yep. you kind of have, and that's the thing, usually, that's, unfortunately, in order for people to understand or to want to fight for, you know, people like us or conditions like ours, we actually have to go something, go through something very traumatic and terrible. Um, but yeah, yeah it it does seem to be that way. <laughs> like, unfortunately, it's, yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, but you know, it's it's true. And so, yeah, so Doctor, you know, so that um, so Doctor Mazzoni was able to, you know, diagnose me, give me some hope. <laughs> you know, be able to at least tell me, uh, yeah, them finding nothing is fine. I 100% believe you that you have this thing. I 100% believe you that this is what's going on. And here's the name. (laughs) And just see a psychologist to, like, talk it out and talk it through. Um. But there's absolutely hope that this is just a blip in your life and you'll get better. So that's, you know, all of that happened July, you know, he diagnosed me in July of 2003. And he, um, and I did the best I could <laughs> to, you know, follow his advice. I had taken a job um, and had kind of, during that hospital stay, just kind of taken the time off. When I tried to go back before I saw Dr. Mazzoni, uh, the hospital had put me on a couple of um, anti-seizure medications that made me extremely tired. And so I just was completely unable to do my job um, I was working there as um, I was helping with some research as a field technician. So I was supposed to be, you know, running around through the marsh and um, holding bird, you know, holding birds they they caught in a net and helping to put, you know, tags on them and things like that. And it was just, you know, all of it was, you know, I'm sorry, I might start shaking at any moment. I really don't want to hurt these, you know, endangered birds that we're studying and. Oh, I'm falling asleep while we're, you know, trying to catch that. You know, it just, 
it, it didn't work, and they uh, they asked me to write a letter of resignation, and I ended up doing that, feeling really depressed about it. Um, and I set myself up with another job that started a few weeks after I saw Dr. Mazzoni, and I went in and started it with the caveat of I'm not driving right now, um, because I found when I, I because I would have these uncontrollable muscle movements uh, at random intervals. I'm like, you know, driving seems like a really bad idea. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I was working at a pretty remote location, so transportation was interesting to work out, to say the least. Um, but I, I limped through for a while. And I... They ended up basically firing me um, at the end of August because of, they didn't say it was because of my symptoms, but that was a big part of it. Like just, again, I couldn't reliably consistently do things. And the way I managed it was a little scary to people. Uh, The the biggest thing I remember is um, I was working in a, I was working in a lab, and um, we had to set up a bunch of things for chemical processes. And we were working with, like, to clean the glassware we were using, um, we were using hexane, which is, it's not recommended to get it on your skin, but it's not super dangerous. And then we were using this other chemical, I can't remember the name right now, that was known for potentially causing organ damage if you got it on your skin. And it soaked through um, plastic gloves, like the kind you would normally wear in the office, Mm -hmm. in about 30 seconds. And it soaked through uh, nitrile gloves, which are the um, the stronger ones. Now you see them all the time in doctor's offices. And it would soak through those in 30 minutes. So just generally to do that work, you were double gloved. <laughs> so you had the nitrile glove on and then the plastic glove over it. And then you're like very carefully washing the glassware, which means you're definitely going to get some on you. And then changing out your gloves regularly and never working more than 30 minutes at a time on it before you throw out your gloves. You know what I mean? So it was, you know, it, it, you're working with nasty chemicals. And uh, the way it worked for me was I could do the work for a while and then my I could tell that my body was about to start shaking. So I would say to the person I was working with, okay, I need a twitch break. And then I would put whatever I was working on down, pull my hands out from under the hood, remove my gloves, and then stand in the corner of the lab and shake for a minute or two. Full body, fantastic shaking, my arms going everywhere, um, my whole body just kind of thrashing around while I'm standing for like, you know, 30 seconds or so, and then I'd take a deep breath, 
put, put, put on two gloves and be like, okay, and back to work. <laughs> you know? Like a, a little like a dog that just came out of the rain. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, that's not super comforting. <laughs> no. Um, and, you know, so uh, they fired me in September. And I didn't have another job lined up. I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. And I didn't feel very, you know, sure that I could get a job because I still didn't know what was going on. And, you know, I was pretty stressed out. And so I just kind of kept going to therapy. And, you know, I had a, I, um, I, you know, kind of talked to my boyfriend. I, I had a, you know, somebody I was, I was dating who'd been a longtime friend. And we'd started dating while I was doing the observer stuff. And, you know, I, I just kind of was like, I don't I don't know what to do with myself right now. I'm doing my therapy. I'm trying not to stress myself out. I just lost another job. Now what? You know what I mean? It was just, mm-hmm. it was tough. Um, and... You know, and so I just kind of, you know, muddled through for a while and just, you know, was trying to figure out what to do with myself next. But I was really like, you know, I really can't work until I, you know, get better. <laughs> right, and yeah. So, you know, I was, I was struggling and I was trying to figure things out. And um, my boyfriend at the time... Um, like got a job, like he was working for um, a government agency, and my father also was working for um, communications. <coughs> excuse me, uh, communications electronics command, uh, CTOM. That and and this is, my dad had always my dad worked. You know, he was a civilian employee. He was a contra- he was a military. He was um an engineer. And right. my boyfriend at the time was also an engineer, just in a different department. And my my boyfriend had to do uh internal internships and work in a different department. And my dad helped you know, was like, Oh, you really want to work with this one group Leo, they're really great. Um I've worked with them in the past and I think that would be a really good fit. And he basically convinced my boyfriend to work with Leo and convinced Leo to take my boyfriend. And he was setting all that up. And I was still just like, I, I, I'm not okay. I'm not sure what to do with myself. You know, I'm just kind of trying to sort myself out. And um, my dad kind of, you know, got that set up. And um, then in early November, as my family was trying to get ready for, um, you know, for Thanksgiving, um, my my dad died. He um, he was working. He was in the backyard, he's climbed up a ladder to, you know, pull some leaves out of the gutter and off the roof. 
and ladder slipped. And he landed um, on the back of his head on concrete. We had a concrete patio in our backyard. And, um, you know, my mom, you know, was, was with him and called 911 and got an ambulance to come. And, uh, they took him to a hospital that was actually nearer to me than to her. And, you know, she rode the ambulance with uh, his body to the to the hospital. And I met her, you know, my boyfriend and I met her there. And we spent six hours in the hospital waiting to be told anything uh, about how my dad was doing. Um, what we eventually found out was that he had a traumatic brain injury. Uh, his skull had shattered in the back. It was an internal wound. There was no bleeding. We know, you know, he looked okay. Uh, for my mom, it looked like he was, you know, sleeping when she was looking at him. Um, but no, um, his skull had shattered and um, he was brain dead. <clears throat> so, you know, we, we had to deal with that. Um, Mom had to, you know, mom had to talk to the people about the organ donation process. And, um, you know, it was, it was, that was probably the biggest trauma of my life. Um, right, right. My mom, with her oversharing and her processing of, uh, her parents' abuse, she'd also, during that process, had been very angry um, and having, like, these emotional outbursts at times. And my dad was always a very, very calm uh, person, very just, you know, he was one of those people that, like, nothing seemed to ripple him. Nothing seemed to phase him. Whatever happened, he'd just be like, oh, okay. Let's, you know, I'll take it. You know, just very calm, very accepting. And um, so... Like, kind of what you needed. Exactly. And so he'd been the one to take me to most of my doctor's appointments. He'd been the one who, you know, made sure I was getting the help I needed. He was the one who... who, who it was kind of my rock through this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so losing him, and again, it was just so sudden. It was, you know, at noon, he was at home. Of course he's at home. Everything's fine. And, you know, let's and then he's on the ground and he's unconscious and then you know by 9 p.m. they told us he was dead and uh, they unplugged his body at 7 in the morning the next day Um, so 
this huge, huge bomb in my life and this huge new emotional trauma well, I'm dealing with a condition that's trauma responsive <laughs> that, you know, uh, and I didn't know that at the time. I know that now. Um, and just this huge, gigantic, new stress and trauma and, oh, my God, my life just exploded, you know? Mm-hmm. And... You know, we, we got through it. But the other part of that was um, mom kind of instinctively, I think, leaned on me a little more for emotional support because her last big, huge emotional trauma, her parents dying, I'd been her other emotional support, you know? Right. And, and I felt you know, super... Yeah, and I felt super hyper-protective of her for the same reasons. And so, like, my sisters were absolutely there as much as they could be. You know, you know, I'm not downplaying them or what they tried to do, but, you know, Lindsay was in college at the time. Emily was living at home, but... Um, doing college courses and getting ready to go away to college. And so mom just leaned on me emotionally, not, you know what I mean? Like, I just remember, I think one of the worst parts of it was she would just come in and be like, I need a hug. And I've always been a very, like, empathetic person, but the FND kind of magnified that and turned it into a very physical thing. And so my mom would come to me for a hug, and I'd reach out and hug her, and then my whole body would start shaking uncontrollably. And she would hug me harder. And I would feel so trapped because I couldn't control, I couldn't even control my body, you know? Yeah. And I couldn't say, Mom, don't hug me because she needed it. And I kind of needed space. (laughs) And I couldn't ask for it. And so it was a really incredibly emotionally tough time. And Now, do you talk so, about a lot of this in your blog? I do. I do. Um, okay. Yeah. I, I Yes. Uh, my blog is Thriving While Disabled. Uh, www. I don't want to cut you thriving. off. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thrivingwelldisabled.com. I do want to save some stuff just for so people can actually read your story too. I mean, I'm loving what you're giving me. Trust me, you can tell me whatever oh. you want, but I also, you know, oh, I yeah, don't no, spoil it's, your it's, whole book. No, 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 it's not. It's it's. I talk about it in little bits, um, mm-hmm. but the way I write my blog is focused usually on solving particular problems. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. 
Right, right, right. So, yeah. so, so yeah. What, what, so, um, what, what made you write it? Like, what made you, what did, as far oh. as, like, what made you actually consider doing a blog? Well, um, that's actually uh, because of my partner, in a way. Um, my current partner, Al, he and I have been together for 10 years now. And Congratulations. Yeah. And um, he has been through two traumatic injuries in the time we've been together. Uh, oh, he okay. had a, he was in a car accident and had a brain injury uh, in 2012, so two years after we got together. And um, I handled all of his health care, <laughs> found the right doctors ah. for him, got him to see the right people, uh, you know, set him up with all of that. And it was a very scary time because I kept being afraid that he would, um, he, he'd lost basically all of his emotional control. Um, all of the filters that are normally there were gone. That was part of how his brain injury worked, along with giving him a constant, severe headache. And um, he, I got him into cognitive rehabilitation. He spent a year doing cognitive rehabilitation exercises. And he was able to regain control, which was, you know, wonderful. Yeah, um, but it was a, you know, it's, it was a really tough year. Um, on top of it being my second year of graduate school. Um, <laughs> so it was a really, really tough year, uh, but, you know, we got through it. And then three years ago, he flipped and his acetabellum, the biggest bone in your body, the hip joint, uh, his broke, shattered, multiple pieces. And first we had to, you know, figure out what happened and then get him to the right doctors, uh, which was actually surgery. We got him into the hospital for special surgery and um, they successfully reconstructed his hip. Um, but then we had to figure out why it happened. And um, I, again, managed all of his medical everything. And it took us a year, but we eventually were able to find out that what actually happened was he had um, autoimmune pernicious anemia. And we didn't notice the mild side effects he had because we thought that the memory issues were because of the brain injury. And um, he, and having the pernicious anemia meant his body wasn't absorbing, wasn't getting any B12, which um, prevented it, which um, basically caused his bones to weaken. So he had osteoporosis which is why his hip broke. And the reason he had the osteoporosis was because of the autoimmune pernicious anemia. Uh, We had to see mm, two different endocrinologists, a hematologist, and a gastroenterologist. And it took us almost a year to get from he broke his hip to, okay, here's the full explanation as to why. 
Florida. So how it always happens. Oh, yeah. So I looked at all of that. And um, Al and I were both in this maybe can't do traditional jobs space. And so he and I were watching various things on, you know, working from home and self-employment and that kind of stuff. And um, I started looking at, at the, at, you know, logging as a possibility. And he's like, uh, yeah, honey, that makes a lot of sense. You like to write and you're a good writer and you know this stuff. You you know, you figured out all of these things and you used my insurance well and you got to the, you found the doctors and you did all the interviews and you figure all that stuff out. Uh, yeah, I can see that being, that's a really good skill that a lot of people would probably benefit from it. And mm-hmm. I hadn't fully thought about it that way. It was just, that's what I do. Um, and so him pointing that out, I was like, yeah, okay, I, I guess I could do that. Mm-hmm. So I've been... What year did you start it? 2018. March okay. of 2018. Um, which was basically a year after Al focus. Right. How often do you do it? Um, I put out posts every week on Fridays. Oh, okay. And yeah. Um, And so, yeah, so I've been, so, yeah, I've got a lot of posts out at this point. And basically, um, they cover a few different things, obviously, but they're all built around this idea of building your best possible life while managing a disability. Um, Right, yeah. So, like, um, I have a lot of topics on doctors and medical care in the sense of how to make sure you're seeing a good doctor, getting second opinions, um, evaluating and researching doctors, what to expect, those kinds of things. Um, Is this your version of a book? Um, I might actually be writing a book eventually. Um, but okay. wait. What this is, is it's designed to be what are the pain points, the the tough things when you're dealing with a chronic illness or a disability. And again, like in my mind, I kind of put them together, but there's a lot of people who might identify as having a chronic illness but might not be ready to embrace the disabled. Um, right, yeah. Yeah, we sure. talked about that yesterday. Mm-hmm. And so, like, for me, it's this, I want to empower people. Um, I want people uh-huh. to realize that they can have control. Um, another thing I write about a fair amount in the blog is I'm living on SSDI, and that's actually, I applied for that in starting in January uh, after my dad died, because I knew that I couldn't work. <laughs> I was not, right. like, physically, mentally, or emotionally capable of it uh, between the FMD, di- the conversion disorder diagnosis, which is now, like I guess I'd probably called FMD, and, you know, the trauma of losing my dad. 
Um, so I applied. I actually got accepted first try. So it was about eight months between when I got the application, when I applied and when I uh, started getting my benefits, which is kind of amazingly fast, um, uh-huh. even for the time. And now it's completely unheard of. Um, and I've done a lot of research into how to make things work. And I'm always willing to do a bit more. And I also have, this is actually my second business I'm launching. <laughs> um, so All right, before, I, you, before you go into that, because that's, that's kind of how I wanted to end it, where you tell your program, yeah. like, um, what, what, so we could just finish off the, you know, after your mom yeah, died and sure. all that. Um, so what, what do you do now as far as, do you take any kind of medication? What do you do for your condition? Well, I actually had found an amazing treatment program. Um, it was called the the Moore Program, Motor uh, um, Motor Reprogramming Program, oh. um, and it was in Louisville, Kentucky. And I found that program in 2016, and I ended up. Uh, being there for treatment on election week in 2016. <laughs> oh, sure. oh, an interesting experience. Um, it it was um, uh, that program was basically a combination of three things: um, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and um, psychological support. So they had a psychologist on the team um, and a few OTs and PTs. And they also had speech therapy for people who needed that as well. And basically what they were working on is a lot of research has gone into FND since I was diagnosed, which is why the name changed. And what they found is the part of the brain that's actually damaged and it's more mm-hmm. of a cross-wire situation than anything else, like a cross-wire is the best way to explain it, is um, the area of the brain that's most impacted is the area that recognizes control. So it feels like um, my symptoms happen and I, you know, can't, I'm powerless and I can't predict them. Um but the part of my brain that's giving the signals for my symptoms to happen is the same. The thing that's missing is the, I told myself to do this. Yeah. Like, you know, you know when you tell your arm to move. Well, when my, you know, when my fingers clench, it's the same process. It's just the part that said, I said to do that. doesn't work. Um, so... The treatment program was this combination of relaxation techniques and, um, like, regaining control, not resting it away, but, like, um, a lot of it was about, all right, if you start having symptoms, 
stop what you're doing. Take a deep breath. Relax yourself. And then try to do it again. And it worked. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I went from having kind of like it got it got really bad while I was in graduate school uh, to the point where I couldn't uh, safely use stairs because my body stopped warning me that I was going to get symptomatic. Um, and that's kind of where I was when I went into the program. And um, when I came out of it, um, I very rarely had any movement symptoms at all. And when they did happen, I could kind of do this pause, deep breath, and then, you know, do what I was doing without having symptoms. So if I started having movements while I walked, I could get that control back. If I, um, you know, my arm would do things, I could give myself a pause and then, you know, do the thing I was trying to do. So it's a lot of adaptive techniques. Um, and so for me, some of my big ones are um, listening to music or talking to people, um, things that are required, like my focus, um, doing those things while I'm doing stuff that's likely to set off my symptoms. And then I'm very unlikely to have the symptoms because it's kind of this um, interruption of processes that normally go, that are normally things your unconscious mind does. So like mm-hmm. disrupting my walking pattern. If I'm talking to somebody and thinking about my conversation, I'm not going to disrupt my walking pattern because I've got that distraction. So FND treatment is a combination, at this point, FND management is a combination of using distraction techniques well and using relaxation techniques well. And the the point of the programs is to remind yourself that you can control these things. You may not be able to keep them from happening, but you can decrease how often they happen, how severe they are, and um, can get control back pretty quickly. Right. So yeah, it's a it's a it's an interesting you know it's an interesting walk to make. Um, right. But yeah, so at this at this point, all of it's about this uh, self control, self awareness. And also a very deep acceptance that this is part of who I am um, because anxiety triggers symptoms. So if I'm worried about my symptoms happening, they're more likely to happen. Right, yeah. So So then I go in. So I have to go. So I kind of go into life with this if I get symptomatic, oh well, people can deal with it. And then I'm less likely to have symptoms. I'll so do then, a bit. Mm-hmm. No, no, go ahead, sweetie. Go ahead. Um, so then I'll do a bit of like planning for things. You know, if I'm doing something, how can I make sure that if I get symptomatic, it's not a problem? So, like, for example, when I fly, it's done in years, but you know, when I do, I give 
the airline staff the heads up that I have a movement disorder, but it doesn't require any interventions. I'm okay. And if I'm not okay, I can tell them that. That right. way, if I do get symptomatic on the plane, they go, oh, okay. Instead of, oh, my God, she's having a seizure and, you know, right. try to rescue me, which just right. makes life more challenging for everyone. So uh-huh. I do this combination of uh, pre-planning and, you know, not worrying about what other people think. Right. No, exactly. Because, yeah, the reality is this is who I am and this is what happens. And worrying about it makes it more likely to happen. So don't worry about it. Right. And have a plan, which is also, you know, a good way to manage anxiety. And then just kind of let it go. So, you know, that's, that's been, you know, how I've, you know, view things in life. And every every time I hit a major um, emotional trauma or, you know, a big stressful event, my symptoms are going to go up. That's just how my life works. Yeah. And then it's my right. job to, you know, right, this right. is why it's right. happening. <laughs> and that makes sense. <laughs> Let me accept it and do what I can to manage it. And eventually the stress too will be managed and life will be better. So, right. um, you know, so like after doing the program in Louisville, I had really good um, control and almost no symptoms for months, and I was just getting used to it, and I was, you know, starting to look into part-time jobs um, when my partner, Al, shattered his hip, which was a new trauma, (laughs) triggered all my symptoms. I had a relapse, and, you know, so I did the combination of managing his stuff and, you know, getting myself through the relapse. Right. I mean, um, you, and again, like I said, I was at one point going to ask you, you know, why you started your program and all that, but it's kind of obvious. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, it makes perfect sense. You want to tell anybody like what your program is and what it offers and all that? Oh, sure. Yeah. So, so I've got the blog and the blog is just full of, you know, what I've learned, what I've experienced on the backdrop of, you know, here's how you manage this problem. And, um, yeah, I talk a lot about, you know, doctors and medical care. I talk a bit about insurance. I I um, talk about, you know, the disabled identity and um, accessibility and shame um, because one of the big things I've noticed is that a lot of the social welfare programs in the U.S. Um, have a lot of uh, shame and stigma attached to them. And so I kind of do a lot of writing to help tease out that getting the help you need without falling into a nasty headspace because unfortunately the way these systems are designed, it's really easy to beat up on yourself either for applying or for the emotions that are dredged up in the application process. 
also offering for people who need more, I have a, um, I'm offering a coaching program uh, specifically for managing the social welfare system uh, where I'll help people um, with a major challenge um, related to it. So I have one client who's applying for SSDI and I'm helping her to get through that application process. I've got a couple of clients who are entrepreneurs themselves and trying to start their own businesses. And um, they're one's on SSI, one's on SSDI. And so I'm helping them understand the rules of self-employment in relation to their program so that they can make sure that they're in control of when, if, and how they lose the benefits they have. Um, so that way there's no unpleasant surprises and they're mm-hmm. empowered so that each step that they take, they know, all right, I stay under this number and I'm good and this is how I stay under the number. Or this is when I'm going to get off of disability. When I hit this point in my business, that's my trigger. Right. Um and that's when I don't worry about how much income I have and I just let the support go. You know, and so it's those kinds of things. It's that um, thinking through the process and making plans so that whatever happens, you're still going to be okay. Do you, now, um, do you have a website where you can go absolutely. to these programs? Uh, absolutely. The, the the website is www.thrivingwelldisabled.com. T-H-R-I-V-I-N-G-W-H-I-L-E-D-I-S-A-B-L-E-D. I want you to, when we get off the phone, I want you to text it to me, and I'll, I'll put it in the description when the episode comes out. Beautiful. And so uh, that's the website. If you go to the website, um, there's a section in the top navigation bar um, that says my offers. So you click on that, and they'll take you to the sales page. I also have um, small, inexpensive online courses on um, applying specifically for um, SNAP benefits and for LIHEAP, which is um, heat and energy like utility support, uh, because both of those can be very useful to get but you can only get them if you're low income. So I wanted to set up something to be a little more helpful than the website I have. So it's me, you know, talking about the process and uh, talking about why it's not that shameful to get it and why the shame exists. And also Mm -hmm. me being encouraging about, you know, the combination of you if you need it, get it, you deserve it, and suggestions on how to you know get through the process and still feel you know good and okay about yourself because for too many people, that application feels like an admission of failure and and you know has a lot of really nasty emotions associated with it. Even though it's their 
to help, <laughs> and that's the purpose of the program. You know what I mean? And it's right. we've got a lot of false narratives in this country about independence and supporting yourself and, you know, all of these stories we tell ourselves that aren't really true, but they're part of, like, our national psyche. And so I just really want people to feel okay about getting that support. Um, I also actually, I also have created a small course um, for people who also have FND uh, focused on one confirming your diagnosis and two on um, and 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 on like suggestions for managing it. Okay. No, that's cool. I think like I said, you know, even though we're doing different things, we're still ending up in the same place where we're just trying to help people with disabilities. At least, you know, and mental mm-hmm. health is in that and you know, oh, there's absolutely. just so many so many ways to, you know, I don't know, dig a hole. Like we have we have to try to find our way in somehow and try to make oh, the sm- even smallest amount of differences as we can. Oh, absolutely. Um, and and I'm like just now launching a new support program um which is more focused on uh you know, people dealing with chronic conditions who are um working and it's all about making sure that you've got like the best support you can and right. feeling in control of that process. Yeah. So, um so, so that's like a big it's like it's a big 6 month uh program where it's just, you know, come on in, tell me about what your what your struggles are in regards to managing your condition, understanding your condition, getting the right care, and all help and support through that that process. Um, or helping people who, you know, have a big, nasty, stressful thing coming up, like a major surgery, or they're trying to get a major surgery, or a big treatment process, things like that, where, again, it's this, let me help you get over that hump and get the help you need and feel confident in getting it. So, yeah, so everything I'm doing in this is all about helping my fellow disabled people. Um, I know I'm coming, I know I'm coming into all of this from a place of relative privilege. My parents did get me to, to, you know, did get me the right medical care, did support me when I got my mental health diagnosis, did, you know, they they helped me every step along the way, and they had the money to be able to get me through that whole process. And my... We all catch breaks once in a while. I mean, it happens. Oh, oh, no, absolutely. And um, what I'm saying... That you want to help. Exactly. And my thing is, you know... I had the time to do a little extra research and wasn't in panic mode when something went wrong. Um, when I decided to apply for disability, I knew my mom would help me financially as I got there. When 
You know what I mean? Like I've just been in that position. Mm. I'm not in panic mode. So I was able to do a little extra research and pull in some more information. Um, And I'm also kind of fascinated with systems and how the systems work. So I've just been gathering all of these pieces and then, you know, writing posts and offering services to say, hey, here's an aspect of this you might not have seen or here's a lesson I learned uh, because I could push a bit. And so, you know, I want to encourage you to push when you need to and here's ways you can push (laughs) and here's steps you can take to help. You know Uh, what I mean? Yeah. And so, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm taking what I got and sharing it out so that, you know, whoever needs it can can get what they need and they know, oh, here's how I handle this piece. Mm-hmm. You know, here's that mm-hmm. here's that step I didn't know I needed. <laughs> um that kind of stuff. Because okay. there are back doors. They do exist. Um you know, there are ways to push on pretty much anything and there's options and choices um that you can take if you know to ask. And the first thing the doctor says isn't always the right thing. Um, and too many people have been taught doctor is an authority figure. You don't question the doctor. Well, no, doctor should be wrong too. <laughs> so, Absolutely. you know, mm-hmm. uh, push back, ask questions. Um, and if they won't listen to you, find a better one. <laughs> right, yeah. Keep pushing. So, because you're going to run into a crap load of dead ends. And if you oh, stop at yeah. the first or second one, like you really, you know, there's some eye surgeries that I'm looking at getting down the road. And, okay. you know, I could say I could say no to them. Well, there's one, mm-hmm. really. But the problem yeah. is, like, they don't have that over my, my head my entire life where I'm just like, you know what? Like, I could have gotten that, and now I'm at a point where I can't get it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you got to really you know, really push for what you need. And like I said, it sucks because you eventually do get to a point where you're at a dead end and this might be your last resort. But, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, of course, you're tired of being told no and, you know, mm-hmm. you're basically too broken to fix this or whatever. Or, you know, a couple of years ago, this could have worked and that and that. But mm-hmm. you still have to try because you're going to have that, thought in the back of your head and you know like I said you really could help your life now Um, oh absolutely there's always oh yeah no there's always something you can do and just and like a part another thing I write about a lot is the mental health aspect and the you know how do you protect yourself how do you improve your mental health how do you you know make your thoughts safer or more helpful or, you know, pull yourself out of, you know, a fuck. And I think all of those are very important. And so I write about that, those pieces a lot too, because I see too much stuff that's like toxic positivity instead of, um, instead of, like, actual helpful, like, I I refer to it as realistic optimism. Like, yeah, um, you know, no amount of smiling at stairs is going to help somebody in a wheelchair get up them. 
but you know making a law that you know ramps and elevators are necessary will help somebody get up get get to the next floor you know mm-hmm. and recognizing that you have strength that you can make decisions that impact your quality of life that you have power that lets you do everything else and so one of the things I think was is most important is that rebuilding of uh, the words actually self-efficacy but that belief in yourself and the belief that you can do things successfully um, I want everybody to have that self-efficacy. And I think too many people, both within the disabled community and generally poor people, have lost that or have had a really hard time finding it. And my goal is to help everybody um, find it again, you know, because we can do stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And we deserve yeah. to get the help we need. And we deserve it. Oh, my God. I got you. Um, well, I, I have to go eat <laughs> because I'm hungry. <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed this. I thank you for doing this. Um, oh, I will let you know you when I'm putting it out. It's probably going to go up in a... Right. Yeah, I think it's going to go up in the next two or three weeks. I'll just let you know. Uh, I'll, of course, I'll I'll send you the link and all that. Um, and we probably could do we'll we'll do we can do something down the uh, down the line do something else. Sure. Uh, I think just Happy having to. these conversations is just super important. You know, oh, obviously, yeah. I think we became we're friends now. So you know, like I said, <laughs> we will. Uh, I'll make sure. Oh yeah, before we go, uh, what, what's mm-hmm. your blog again? Uh, thriving well disabled. Thriving well disabled. Thriving well disabled. Thriving well disabled. Check it out myself, and uh, like I said, yeah, I'll talk to you later, right? All right, talk to you later. All right, talk to you later. <laughs>